Good morning. We're in the book of Hebrews. I have one cleanup to do. Look in your Bibles at Hebrews 4.8. And the question is, does your Bible in verse 8 say Jesus or Joshua? You got a Joshua. Okay, anybody's Bible says Jesus. Hebrews 4.8. Okay. If you have the King James, it'll say Jesus. And if you don't have a study Bible, it'll leave it as Jesus. So there are the other translations we've been working with. The Greek word Jesus is the exact same thing as the Hebrew word Joshua. And in this, and so in a translation, Jesus is actually a transliteration, just like the word baptize means immerse but it didn't come across as immersed, it came across as baptize, all right? So the reason that Joshua is important because it points, it does, for two things, first of all, it points to the history, and we've been talking about Jesus is better than Moses, and we've gone through the Pentateuch. Uh, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, Joshua is working through all those city-states, and we've been talking about rest. And so in that verse it says, for if Joshua had given them rest, in other words, they did all that fighting, they had their battles, they built their cities, they lived at peace, but it wasn't the kind of rest that they were talking about. That's the first point. Second point is, if Jesus led them and had anticipation for rest, they would have, in fact, had rest. One side note, public service announcement, happy Independence Day. If the Son of Man shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. That's the independence that I have on top of being an American citizen. I often talk about the Oracle Bible studies. And there are people online, there are at least three from China, there's one from the Philippines, one from Brazil, one from Venezuela, uh, I think I said Philippines, uh, several from India, and they all say the same thing. What are you people doing? talking about our country and uh, how it's right now being torn apart. So let's be much in prayer for the country, and uh, I'll simply say for his will to be done. So there's the overview, and we left off talking about those two exhortations. The first exhortation, what happens if you ignore your salvation or don't grow thereby? And uh, later on in chapter 5, we're going to see where uh, Paul chastises the people for not growing in their faith. The second one was, do your best to rest. And so you see there, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. The rest that Hebrews ta is talking about is not peace with God. That happened on the day of salvation. The peace of God. Now, how do I get the peace of God? It's living for him. And so we're going to go into one last precursor slide. The just shall live by faith occurs several times in Scripture. Once in the Old Testament, and then I use the King James because it changes those words around, and three times in the New Testament. And you can see how the emphasis is different 
book by book. In Romans, he was talking about justification, and so the just shall live by faith. Galatians talks about a lifestyle, so it says the just shall live by faith. And the book of Hebrews talks about faith. In fact, the phrase Hebrew, in uh, the Hebrews, the phrase by faith occurs 17 times. The just shall live by faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith is it, impo- it is impossible to please him, knowing that he is and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So key words, I've had better up there on the wall already, all, once for all, and you can add a couple more, by faith and let us. You see those words many times in the book of Hebrews. So let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. And here was the very last verse that we put on the wall last week with no commentary. We ended there because the clock said 945. And you've heard this verse many times. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What was the first word of that verse? For or because. It's tying us back to do your best to rest. Let us therefore make every effort to enter into that rest because the word of God is active, King James powerful, and we're going to start parsing that sentence uh, before we start talking about the high priest. So metaphors for the word. You've heard the word being used for lots of different things. First of all, Jesus. That is not a metaphor. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So we're going to take that notion of a metaphor off the table. But if Jesus, we'll do a little bit of arithmetic, okay, If Jesus equals word, and word equals sword, then in arithmetic, Jesus equals sword, right? So we're going to look at these metaphors of the word and tie them back to Jesus. So first metaphor is a lamp. It's a light, light unto my path. Second It's a nourishment, and we're going to be covering uh, the notion of milk, the sincere milk of the word, um, probably next week. I don't think we're going to get that far this week. Again, in terms of nourishment, it talks about meat. Now, the modern translations say solid food. Okay. So there you see a lamp, milk, meat, and a mirror. I put it in that sequence because if it's pitch black, the mirror doesn't do you any good. So, James tells us, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. King James says, in a glass. And then goes away forgetting what manner of man he was. And so, Jesus is my light. He said, I am the light of the world. He is my nourishment. He said, I am the bread of light. And he is my mirror. You say, well, 
What do you mean he's my mirror? You don't look like Jesus. Well, the more the same appearance changes, that's how much I'm, how bad off I am. Because if it's a match, I'm doing well. I found that rest. But the word is a mirror. The word is water. Wasn't the verse I was thinking about, but we'll take a look at that one. That Jesus might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Titus tells us it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his great mercy has he saved us through the washing of the word and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So then we have a sword that cuts. Now what's the difference between that last metaphor and all those prior? It, that's right, it, it, could, it could be a weapon slash tool, right? It does damage, that's exactly right. And so, the word of God is alive and active, quick and powerful, the King James says, sharper than any two-edged, sharper than any double-edged sword. So, the word is a sword that cuts. And you see Revelation 19, he is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the picture says, and out of his mouth proceedeth the word of God, proceedeth the sword. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Well, now that's third person. That sword is dealing with those nations because I'm going to be on one of those horses behind Jesus' horse. I would have, I'll need Velcro for my saddle, but that's where I'm going to be. So that particular version of the sword is for somebody else. Now, the book of Ephesians says to put on the whole armor of God, and you see there, verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. We're talking about spiritual battles. Now, that particular sword... If I'm the guy in the armor, who's that sword intended for? The enemy, the devil and his demons, right? I told you that when we went through Moses and then we went to Joshua, we're going to move into the book of Judges. Who knows anything about this guy named Ehud? Ehud. Andrew, you do. What do you know about him? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, you can see, you see that. That's exactly right. And if you look at the picture, there's Ehud with his left hand. We're going to get to the left hand in a little bit. And over here is the fat guy, and the sword is going into him. So we're going to take a look at those verses very quickly because there's a tail end of that story that I want to drive home. So the story of Ehud. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Jerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, it's hard to prove a negative, and it's also hard to prove exclusivity. But if you find a lefty in the Bible that's not from the Benjamin tribe, please tell me, because I have not been able to find one. 
And that's why I'm saying Paul was probably a, a South Paul. But that's neither here nor there. There was a man named Ehud. The name Ehud means one who praises, who was raised up. The book of Judges, uh, in fact, most of the Old Testament goes through a cycle. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. But just like a slinky going down the steps, that deliverance doesn't take them back to that same moral plateau. It goes lower and lower and lower. So sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance. And you can see it through judges, and then you can see it through the kings. You have a blurb for David, and then it goes right back down again. So Ehud was one of those deliverers. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So here's what, how it goes. He's left-handed. So if he's going to reach for, I'll use the word dagger, because it's going to talk about... Uh, a cubit. It's going to be an 18-inch long sword as opposed to, say, you, you look at the description of the sword of Goliath. I mean, it was all but a, a two-by-four stud. It was huge. This is the little thing, okay? If he's left-handed, he's going to go like this. So if he was searched, most people are right-handed, they would look over here. But he was left-handed, so he's got the cash, and he's got his sword or his dagger, and he goes into the king, and he says... I'd like to be alone with the king. No problem. So all the bodyguards go outside. He comes up to e Eglon, and he pulls that knife and sticks it to him. And Ehud made, made for himself a sword. Why did he have to make one for himself? They were disarmed. They didn't have a Second Amendment. Why was Switzerland not overcome during World War II? They were armed. They didn't need a Second Amendment. Another public service announcement. He made for himself a sword with two edges. It was a two-edged sword. And it was sharp. And it was quick. And it was powerful. And he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull the sword out of the belly. He delivered the message, and then he left. And here's the last phrase, and the dung came out. You say, oh, John, that's gross. Why did you have that last verse? We're going to see shortly. So the word of God is active. Martin Luther said, the word of God is active. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. So we talked about the sword in Revelation 19. That target was unsaved people and Satan. You know, Michael took uh, Satan and bound him in the pit for a thousand years. Their object was unbelievers and Satan. We talked about Ephesians, and the object was the devil and his demons. Now we're in Hebrews, and the object is one. The word of God is two-edged, and it's sharp. Two-edged meaning it cuts both ways, and we're going to talk about the penetration shortly. But Martin Luther said that word is active. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that he would not preach any verse that did not bite him. I'm a Spurgeon fan, if you didn't notice. Okay, let's go on. 
The word of God is active slash powerful. Now, the word that they used is energist, is where we get the word energy. So it's active, it's powerful, it's okay. The word of God penetrates until the dung comes out. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of men. penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and spirit. Now, man is a trinity, right? Body, soul, spirit. Sometimes you're reading scripture and it doesn't mention soul and spirit. It simply says body and soul. The spirit is the part that makes me God conscious. It's the part of me that thinks. Paul wrote, he says, the natural man receiveth not the things of God, for it's foolishness unto him, for they are spiritually discerned. The spirit is the part that's God conscious. The soul is the feelings, and it's the self-conscious. I'd like to think that if my label were hanging backwards or something like that, you would tell me, because I would then be self-conscious. Feelings can play games with you. Jeremiah wrote, he said, the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? You know, some days I just don't feel saved. And maybe you have that same situation. There's some days where I just don't feel very spiritual, not to play on that word. But I'm still saved. And then the body, of course, is the carcass. It's the tent that, that hosts this stuff for now. The word of God penetrates. Here we see a couple of verses from Psalms. And this is David. And he was dealing with uh, the sins of adultery and murder. And he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. When the Spirit of God, through the Word, starts putting the pressure, John, you're not what you should be. John, you blew it again. It could have physical effects, and David is telling us about that. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long will the Lord trouble David? How long will the Lord trouble John? Until the dung comes out. That was Psalm uh, 6. We're going to read Psalm 31 shortly. And then ultimately, Psalm 51 talks about, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. The dung had come out, and he's now talking about going back and taking on his rightful position of leading. So, Psalm 31. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. That sword is able to penetrate to the dividing of the soul and the spirit and the, and the marrow and the bones. His body, his soul, his entire being was troubled because the word of God penetrates. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away.
jump a few chapters forward into Hebrews. The book of Hebrews says that the Lord chastens those who he's received. And if you've not been chastened, King James says you're a bastard or an illegitimate and not his son. So every one of us, one time or another, I'll say many times again, we're on the hot seat. Dr. Dobson would talk about in the crucible. I don't want to be on the hot seat very long because I don't want to waste away. I don't, that pressure is just not very friendly. And Jesus is not doing it because he's mean. He's doing it because he wants us to enter into that rest. And so Hebrews 12, and have you, I can't see that far. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when approved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So the word of God is alive and it's active and it's sharp. And I'll also say, the King, I'll use the King James word instead of alive, quick. When the Lord puts something on my mind, it's not like it's, it just comes. David, boom, you're an adulterer. What did Nathan say? He said, thou art the man. Comes quick. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. I'm using the King James right here because I want to use a particular word when we get towards the bottom. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. King James says nourishment to thy bones. Now, I wish Jeff Craig were in here because once upon a time he worked in a butcher shop. If you're cutting, you've all seen this. You get the ham and it's got the bone in the middle. What's that red thing in the middle of that bone? That's the marrow, that's right. And unless you've cooked on that ham, like for bean soup or something, how tough is it to get through that bone to that marrow? It's next to impossible. But the word of God can do it quickly. The word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. I know, you know when I sit down and when I get up, you know my thoughts before I think them. In fact, he knows my thoughts before the foundation of the world. He knew we were all going to be here together. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Does he want God to know about them? No, he wants me to know about them. Now, David didn't forget about his adultery and his murder. He just kept pushing them back. You know, Uriah was dead, the baby was dead, I guess I'll marry Bathsheba. He didn't forget that stuff. It's still there. It's just like if a person falls out of church. Let's say somebody used to come here and then they're gone. You tell me every time they drive by, they say, hey, I wonder what's down that road. There's nothing. So the Lord wants, the Lord wants us through these psalms, encourages us to say, God, 
Show me where I failed you. Well, I knew where I failed him. We're going to get to the the show you short, show show me shortly. I know where I failed him. But that brings us back to the definition in your in the Bible of forget versus remember. Chuck Swindoll would say forgiveness is giving up the right to remember. All right. So let's say Sean did something really egregious, like cut off my arm. And I forgive him. I still don't have an arm. And I see him in the parking lot, and I might have something come in my head like, oh, man. I have to give up the right to remember, give up the right to take action, give up the right to even think about it. Corey Ten Boom tells a story, where she's now passed, but she told the story. She was giving a speech, Corey Ten Boom, the author of The Hiding Place, Christian lady that was put in a concentration camp for for harboring Jews. Her sister died in the concentration camp. And when the the event was over, another lady comes walking down the hallway, the aisle, and it was her prison guard. And the topic that Corey Ten Boom was on was the topic of forgiveness, you know, love one another. And the lady said to her, will you forgive me? killed her sister, did who knows what atrocities, certainly wasn't very pleasant, whatever the job was. And Corey would testify, she said, all of a sudden, the spirit got a hold of me, and I reached out and I hugged her. Corey hadn't forgot about that lady. It just didn't get to the forefront of her mind. So, When God is judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart and we're praying, Lord, tell me about this stuff. You know, show me where I've failed you so that I can repent and I can take action. So let's move forward. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Now, that secret sin doesn't mean Jane doesn't know I did this. Secret sin means it's something that I just wasn't even aware of. God wants to bring those to the forefront because he wants to make me better. He wants to give me rest. He wants me to get all this stuff out, and the word of God's going to do that until the dung comes out. And no creature, including self, and no creature is hidden from his sights, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So right here becomes a really interesting transition because we've talked about better, and they're talking about, you know, better than the prophets. Jesus spoke, uh, the the Lord spoke indirectly to his people through the prophets. But now, this is in Hebrews chapter 1, now it talks, the word of God talks directly through his son because he was three years on the earth. Better than Moses, the Bible talks about Jesus being faithful and Moses being faithful, Jesus being meek, and Moses being the most meek person that ever was. Better than the angels, those things we're talking about better in terms of who Jesus is. We're now going to talk about he's better because of what Jesus did and what he continues to do. Jesus has 
several names, but the two that are coming to my mind are the name Jesus and the name Christ. The name Christ means anointed. It's the same word as Messiah. When Jesus was a baby, he was Jesus. I'm sitting there saying, duh. When he was 12 years old, he was Jesus. When he was with the apostles, he was Jesus. Now, everything is in anticipation. He said to his mother, mine hour has not yet come. But when he said it is finished, he became the Christ. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. And now I have the God-man, Jesus Christ, as my high priest, as my mediator. And so now we're going to talk about Jesus as the high priest, and we're going to contrast some of the things between Jesus and Aaron. So first of all, Jesus, our high priest, uh, you see in that picture the ark. Now, when, the, when this is Exodus 24 through 26. When the ark was being built, Jesus said, Yahweh said, it's a blueprint. Well, that ark did fine historically because it became the ark of the covenant, the ark of the tabernacle, the ark of the, the, the temple. The ark disappeared. I'm guessing it's still around, but it talks about the heavenlies. Just like the whole tabernacle with all the skins and the posts and everything else, it was a blueprint. And if you read Revelation chapter 22, Willie's in chapter 21, you read Revelation chapter 22 and it talks about a temple who is Christ in the heavenlies. So there's the ark and the ark was a, a, a type of Jesus. And there's the incense. The incense is the prayer of the saints. You read from Revelation. I can't read that because of the background. Let my prayers be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So incense was being offered. Prayers are being offered. Are prayers still being offered? I hope so. Yes, prayers are still being offered. So there's Jesus. He's up there to receive our prayers. Now we're going to just cut a little bit deeper. You see those stones? You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment that is not that it may not tear. We'll get to the stones in a little bit. This one is concentrating on that blue. It was made woven so that it might not be torn. When Jesus was on the cross, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, not everybody had a tunic like that because otherwise they wouldn't have spelled out how it was woven. He was already in priestly garments. So now we're going to look at the stones. Exodus. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel, and they shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. But I also put his hand in that block. Can a woman forget her nursing child? 
that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus is my high priest. He has been robed in righteousness. He was robed in righteousness before he became the Christ. And just like for those 12 tribes, the high priest was that mediator, Jesus is now the mediator for all of us. Going all the way back to Abraham when he said, through Abraham, the nations will be blessed. So Jesus, our high priest, for this reason, he had to be made like them. Jesus had to become a man, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Well, that's chapter 2. When we get to chapter 5, and that's where we are right now, that verse is going to be blown up a little bit, and we're going to see it here shortly. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, that verse does not mean, if I let go, I lose it. That's not what that means. What that means cherish our faith cherish our faith and as we move through chapter 5 into chapter into chapter 6 that's going to become very very important chapter 6 talks about if you've tasted the word well the bible says that jesus tasted death for every man same word when he tasted death does that mean he had a near-death experience no, he was dead. Did Jesus raise himself? No, he was dead. Romans chapter 8 says he was raised by the Spirit. He was dead. He tasted death. He did the whole thing. We'll get, I, I keep on going back to chapter 6. I should do chapter 6 and get it off my chest, huh? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Was Jesus hungry? Yes, 40 days. If the pastor goes more than 15 minutes over, my stomach starts going. Was Jesus tired? Yes. Jesus, they say big boys don't cry. Did Jesus ever cry? Wait till you see the verse in chapter 5 that compares Jesus with, with Melchizedek. Go ahead and read it ahead. You know that we have pictures of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's got this big rock, and his hands are like this, and he's got the halo. Yeah, chapter 5 has him, has him prostrate on his face with crying, with the oppression of all the sins of the whole world from Adam and Eve all the way up to the last guy, the last person, all on top of them, all at the same time. That's just the sins. Then he had the devil and his demons. And Satan was there at Genesis chapter 3. He knew what was coming, and he was trying to avert all of that. And in all that screaming, Jesus says, not my will, but thy will be done. So when they talk about obedience, the, the phrase is going to be, he learned obedience through suffering. 
Now, it'd be one thing if they just took Jesus and put him in front of a firing squad or dropped, him, dropped the guillotine on him or something, but no, it was a slow and painful death. It started with fists and slaps and went to thorns and went to flogging and went to nails until he shed every drop of blood for my sins and the sins of the whole world. And that's why he can be my high priest. He was tempted just as we are. First John talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those were the three things that Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. The lust of the flesh. If you be the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. If you be the son of God, why don't you just drop down? Here's the pride of life. I'm, I'm, I'm alive and I can just, I mean, the angels are just going to swoop me up. And I have this bungee cord on my ankle. No. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these nations. Satan didn't have him to give in the first place. Jesus' response was, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He was tempted just like, if I said he was tempted just like I am, well, then he's familiar with my stuff. But he was tempted just as we are, everybody's stuff. Whether you're an abortion doctor or Joe Stalin or something like that, and, and we, we measure unholiness one way. In Jesus, James tells us if we're guilty of a portion of the law, we're guilty of the whole law. But he didn't, he wasn't familiar with just mine. He's Eric and Carolyn and Willie and Raul and everybody. He has, he's been familiar with everything that we've ever been tempted with, yet without sin. And so we can go to this guy and he can empathize with us. You know, he would use the phrase, been there, but not done that. He's been there, but he never did it. Let us, there, there's another one of those lettuces. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And the King James says boldly. Now, that doesn't mean sassy. Hey, Dad, you promised, so let me have something. It means confidence, knowing that he's going to be there to help me. He didn't save me to just say, okay, John, you're on your own. I'll see you whenever. He's there to help me in time of need. And we're going to get to a later chapter where he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And if he seems distant, who moves? Self. So we're continuing on with the notion of better, and we're going to talk about the priesthood. Jesus Christ, the high priest, he's immortal. If you've done your studies, then you've heard of this thing called the cities of refuge. There are six cities of refuge in, in Israel, and when Joshua moved over, they set them aside. And the notion of the city of refuge was, if you committed murder without malice or forethought, you could go to one of those cities, and you would have sanctuary, nobody could touch you, until the high priest died. But my high priest isn't going to die. So I've got sanctuary forever. So he's immortal. He's sympathetic because he's familiar with what I'm going through. And he's approachable. The book of Romans says that we now have access through faith. The veil was torn top to bottom. The, sword, the, the spear went in his side. And truly, this was the Son of God. We have access 
because Jesus became the Christ. He went from learning obedience through suffering to every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Lord. Aaron's priesthood, five bullets, and they're the first four verses from Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to cover these five bullets and then we're going to quit, okay? He must be taken from among men. That's, these are all Adam's, Adam's points, and I'm going to comment on Jesus' side. He must be taken from among men. The Bible says that Jesus was an ordinary guy. You couldn't tell him apart. If you go over to Israel and you see a little Jewish boy, that's what Jesus looked like. He, the high priest acted as a representative of the people and not as a private citizen, not as a private individual. And that's what Jesus did. Now, the difference is that high priest had to offer sacrifice for himself before he could offer sacrifice for the others because he was sinful. We're talking about the Aaron priesthood. When Moses came down off the mountain, what did he see? That was the best answer. There was a party. And when Moses confronted his big brother Aaron, Aaron said, Moses, you're not going to believe this. And Moses didn't. The women gave me all their earrings. I threw it in the fire and out jumped this golden calf. And he's the high priest. Jesus tempted as we are yet without sin. So he works as an individual. He was not exempt from weakness. Aaron was not exempt from weakness. Was Jesus weak? I was reading this article this week, the 10 toughest men of the NFL. And Tom Brady was in there, and Edelman was in there, and a couple linemen were in there. And so-and-so was in there because he was the last guy who played without a face mask that wasn't a kicker. And I'm thinking, I never saw a football game like that one week that Jesus went through. Was he weak? Yeah, he was weak. He, he asked for his father from help. When, when, the, when the Satan left him after the temptation, the Bible says that the angels came and ministered unto him. He was weak, but he plowed through that weakness. Was he wrong? No, he was never wrong. Uh, the, the Bible word is infirmity. Well, Jesus had weakness, but he was not, there was no sin in him. He came before God with gifts and sacrifices. Aaron did that and he did it once a year. Jesus came and did it once for all. What was his gift? Himself. When Abraham, oh, I'm over time. I'll just finish this and then we'll, we'll quit. When Abraham was there with Isaac and the knife was up in his hand, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Different translation, God himself will provide a sacrifice. And what did Jesus do? He presented himself. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And now I'm two minutes over, so let's just quit.